Welcome to Healthcare Beat, a healthcare podcast brought to you by Seifarth Shaw's cross-disciplinary healthcare team. Each beat will focus on key industry trends and the latest developments while identifying practical takeaways for those in this space. I'm Adam Lawton, partner in Seifarth's corporate department and host of Healthcare Beat. Let's jump in. On today's episode of Healthcare Beat, we're joined by John Bronstein, a partner at Seifarth focused on healthcare, insurance, and commercial litigation and investigations, and a steering committee member of the firm's Healthcare Life Sciences and Pharmaceuticals Group. Our topic today is going to be something adjacent to some past discussions that we've had about the False Claims Act. False Claims Act is the federal government's primary tool to get money back for federal health care programs when they believe there's been fraud or false claims filed. It's not healthcare specific, but many of the cases are healthcare. However, today what we're talking about are state versions of statutes that are similar to the False Claims Act. They vary from state to state, but many of them have, like the Federal False Claims Act, whistleblower provisions that allow private plaintiffs to bring cases and produce evidence rather than it simply being the government investigator's job. So, John, as we start, what are the distinctions between these federal and state whistleblower laws? Sure. So you talked a little bit about the False Claims Act, and then I think you also alluded to that many states have their own versions of the False Claims Act. But then what we're talking about today is just something even slightly different than that, which is, you know, essentially private payer statutes that private insurance companies use to go after what they believe to be fraud. So to answer your question, there are material differences between the False Claims Act and state whistleblower laws specific to private payers. Notably, uh, a False Claims Act claim, right, or an FCA claim involves a single victim, the federal government. And the goal of the FCA is to recoup government funds lost through the fraud of federal contractors. In other words, when a federal contractor fraudulently overcharges the government, public monies are lost. And the federal government is the only direct victim. And the person who brings the action on behalf of the state called the relator or the federal government called the relator, they recover a bounty for bringing the fraud to light. If a federal contractor's fraud on the government were the subject of multiple actions, the amount of money recovered by the government is actually diminished. In contrast, right, the state whistleblower private payer laws seek to prevent private insurance fraud. Insurers, not the federal government, are the direct victims of the fraud. Unlike an FCA claim, the same fraudulent insurance scheme can have numerous direct victims. And generally, many of those victims will not be known to the whistleblower or the party filing the initial action since the scope of the fraudulent scheme may not be known, that may not be fully known when the action's filed. You know, again, in, in an FCA action, the direct victim will always be clear from the start, the federal government. So when multiple FCA proceedings ultimately reduce the amount of funds recovered by the government, in contrast, for each successful prosecution of a state whistleblower action by an insurer, the government recovers more money, not less. In particular, I mean, which states are we talking about that have laws like this? Sure. California and Illinois are the trailblazers in this area. They both have whistleblower laws that protect non-government private payers. In California, it's called the California Insurance Fraud Prevention Act. And in Illinois, we have, uh, which is modeled after the you know, California Insurance Fraud Prevention Act. In Illinois, we have the Illinois Insurance Claims Fraud Prevention Act. Both of these laws protect private insurers from fraudulent claims. They serve to reduce the cost of insurance for consumers. And again, they, they're, they're similar to, but distinct from a Federal False Claims Act, and they apply to claims presented to private insurers. We anticipate that other states will soon adopt similar laws modeled after you know, these statutes in California and Illinois. 
And what was the purpose behind instituting these laws in each of these states? Well, the California statute is intended to encourage insurers to bring fraud actions. It is in the government's interest to have insurers investigate and prosecute insurance fraud. The government serves to gain both in terms of fraud prevention and financially from such actions, especially given the limited investigative and prosecutorial resources available to the government. So it's stated another way, the clear import of the legislation is to reduce fraud against insurers in order to benefit policyholders. Now, I know we're talking you know, today largely in terms of, of health care, but you know, these statutes are, are broader, right? And they're designed you know, not only for health care and health insurance, but also auto insurance and workers' comp. The Illinois law, which I, I think you asked about as well, that was created to combat organized insurance fraud schemes. It's largely modeled after the California statute and essentially similarly creates financial incentives for government and private citizens to bring civil suits against persons who seek to defraud private insurance companies. So, John, who is allowed to sue under these various laws? Any interested person, including an insurer. But I think one of the issues is what is an insurer for purposes of these laws and what is an interested person? Because although these statutes are found in insurance code provisions and often speak in terms of insurance, you know, they have broad application and they are intended to be broad remedial measures. And so some of the action in terms of litigation is, well, what exactly is an insurance company? Might it also include things, for example, like other private payers, such as a self-funded plan or an ERISA plan or other sort of you know, commercial insurer different than what you think of as your standard insurance company? So it's an interesting question under the law. And ultimately, it's any interested person, including but not necessarily limited to what you think of as a traditional insurer. It can include other private payers. And so now we've sort of tackled the plaintiff side of the equation. On the defendant side, I mean, what sorts of people get sued under these laws? Well, so who can be sued? And really, that too is broad. One definition, or at least one definition found in, in some of the legal authorities is any person who knowingly presents or causes to be presented a false or fraudulent claim, any claims characterized in any way by deceit. So that's a, that's a pretty broad definition. To give you some specific examples, and again, mindful that, you know, these statutes are, you know, they target healthcare, but they're not specific to healthcare, right? They, they include other areas. For example, uh, who can be sued? Cases might involve claims submitted by sham medical practices, claims submitted by sham law practices, self-referrals, kickbacks for referrals. So essentially any, any person who knowingly provides something of value to a person to refer clients or patients, payments to cappers and runners in exchange for referrals, you know, kickbacks for referrals, like I said. Another one, you know, fee splitting arrangements could also be the subject of one of these suits. So any persons who are involved in un unlawful fee splitting to compensate for referrals. I think that's a fairly broad bucket of, you know, the types of persons who can be sued. And we know under the Federal False Claims Act, there are relators who are acting on behalf of the government. Then the government can sort of jump in and take over a prosecution if they think it's, you know, got legs under these state laws. Do private plaintiffs have the ability to pursue a private cause of action purely on their own? Yes. Both the California and Illinois statutes present a private cause of action for violations of penal code provisions relating to insurance fraud. So, you know, the, the California, both the California statute and the Illinois statute actually by their terms, you know, identify underlying uh, state criminal law statutes that you know, serve as the predicate for the state whistleblower statutes. And what is the act? I guess we're really getting down into the nuts and bolts here. What's the actual act 
where liability attaches or originates for somebody, for a defendant or potential defendant who's going to get in trouble? What do they have to do that's problematic? Sure. So ultimately, when does liability attach, right? And and I think the answer to that is when a false or fraudulent claim is presented to a private insurer, plan, or other payer. And the focus here is on the submission of a false claim. Whether the claim was paid, right, is irrelevant. The focus is on the billing and the submission of the false claim, okay? The insurer's claim handling is irrelevant. The uh, insurer or other you know, private payers' investigation is irrelevant. And how much money they paid is irrelevant. It's all about the billing. So for example, if you know, an entity or a person is accused of having submitted you know, a million dollars in false claims, even if the fraud was detected or the claims were denied rightfully or wrongfully, and say only $1,000 was paid, the liability is going to be based on, and we'll talk about the multipliers probably later on in this discussion, but it's all about the billing. It's all about the million dollars that were submitted, not the $1,000 that was paid. So the short answer to your question is the liability attaches anytime a false claim is submitted or billed for payment or reimbursement. So let's talk numbers now. So you get one of these suits and you're, you're considering what your defense is going to be and how hard should you fight this? What's the potential damages or, or how does all that shake out in terms of leveraging a settlement or you know, going forward with the litigation? Well, as we discussed, as framed, these statutes cover all false or fraudulent claims presented to all private insurers. And these laws have teeth. So first and foremost, it's treble damages. And I use the word damages carefully. Some people don't think that that's the best word for these statutes. We, we often talk in the FCA or in these statutes in terms of damages. Some practitioners prefer the word assessment. But in any event, whether it's treble damages or treble assessments, treble just means three times. So basically triple. So back to the example we gave before, where we talked about a million dollars in false claim submissions. Well, first and foremost, you'd have a triple you know, or treble damage or assessment of $3 million. So you submitted you know, a million dollars in false claims right off the hook. The potential liability is the $3 million or the triple treble you know, um, damages or assessments. On top of the triple assessments, right? you have a penalty, potential penalties of somewhere between $5,000 and $10,000 for each false claim. So if it was, you know, I don't know, 100 claims that made up that, you know, million dollar false submission, you've now got, you know, penalties of 5 to 10,000 times 100. So between the assessments and the penalties, you can see how the numbers multiply here pretty quickly. And in addition, right, there's also the right to recovery of the um, attor- attorney's fees for the relator who's bringing the action. So ultimately, right, the key markers are the, you know, the treble damages, the penalties, and the attorney's fees. So these things have a lot of teeth. Relatedly, right, is does the whistleblower get a cut? How does that process work? So yes, if the government intervenes in Illinois, the whistleblower is going to get a 30% cut of the proceeds of the action or settlement, and there's no cap. In California, if the government intervenes, the whistleblower is entitled to at least 30% of the proceeds of the action, but not more than 40. If the government does not intervene in the action, uh, the Illinois whistleblower is entitled to at least 40% with no cap. And, you know, if the, if the government does not intervene, the whistleblower in California is entitled to 40 percent, you know, but not more than 50 percent. So there's a lot of teeth and a lot of incentives, you know, for whistleblowers to bring these actions. And looking at self-funded plans, which are, you know, a, a very different beast in some ways, are there things about the way that this statute interacts with those plans that are unique? 
Yes. So one challenge for self-funded plans is really sort of an existential question of whether and to what extent self-funded plans or you know welfare plans or ERISA plans have sufficient fraud protections. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we think of traditional insurance companies, you know, they have special dedicated, you know, anti-fraud teams, commonly, you know, usually called special investigation units, SIUs. In contrast, right, plans usually do not. So they have to outsource their fraud, waste, and abuse investigations and, you know, recovery procedures. And then as we sort of alluded to earlier, you know, query whether and to what extent the private payer statutes apply to ERISA plans and self-funded plans as distinct from, you know, traditional insurance companies. I mean, you can envision a scenario whereby, you know, savvy plans that have perceived themselves to have been the victims of, of, of fraud, right, that subject to these statutes, they will assert that these laws apply to them, right? This goes back to, you know, what is insurance? What's the purpose of the statute? Even though they're not traditional insurers, they're going to assert that these laws apply to them and that they can prosecute actions under these private fraud whistleblower statutes. In contrast, savvy healthcare providers or other defendants, you know, again, you know, these statutes are not limited to healthcare, but, you know, savvy defendants might argue that, you know, to the contrary, that, that these statutes was not intended to apply to, you know, non-traditional insurers. So ultimately, given this uncertainty, right, non-traditional insurers, right, other payers, plans need to consider whether to pursue, you know, this particular remedy or whether they should pursue, you know, alternative tort and statutory claims instead, or do both. And certainly all of this presents a host of timing and strategy and procedural issues probably beyond the scope of today's discussion, but Savvy Council can help um, navigate those. And now imagine you've got some information, you're thinking about being a whistleblower. What are the steps for a whistleblower bringing actions under one of these laws? Sure. So bringing action, lots of procedural questions for bringing an action under these laws. First and foremost, right, you've got to comply with the statute of limitations. You've got to bring a timely action. The statute of limitation is usually three years after discovery of facts constituting grounds for commencing an action, but not more than eight years after commission of an act constituting a violation. So that's a mouthful. You know, your default SOL is three years, but if your discovery of the facts is delayed, ultimately it could be up to, you know, eight years. If you bring a timely action, right, that's not barred by the statute of limitations, that's when you file it. And, and this is where the procedure gets interesting. A relator bringing an action files the complaint under seal confidentially. You then serve the government agencies with the relevant evidence and a copy of the complaint. And the government, right, then has at least 60 days to decide whether or not it wants to intervene in the action. And we talked about that a little earlier on. We were talking about the, you know, the cut of the proceeds. If the government chooses not to intervene, the whistleblower proceeds with litigation. If the government chooses to intervene, it decides the extent and involvement and its role. Typically, there's a right to a jury trial in California, less so in Illinois. It's a little bit beyond the scope here, but that's the essence of the procedures. Comply with the timeliness, bring it, file a complaint under seal, give the government a chance to intervene, and then the government either proceeds or the relator proceeds and moves forward. Thanks, John. We appreciate everything you've shared with us. If we had to sum all this up into just a couple of takeaways from the discussion, what do you think those are? The takeaways are these. The False Claims Act is specific to claims made by federal contractors for federal funds. You know, in the healthcare context, right, that would be like Medicare. And many states have similar laws specific to state funds in the healthcare context. For example, in California, we have Medi-Cal. So we have our own California False Claims Act, which is modeled after the False Claims Act. But the point of today is that some jurisdictions, particularly California and Illinois, have additional whistleblower laws that are specific to private payers. These laws are valuable, historically underutilized tools to the payer industry that are gaining traction. 
as we've discussed, these laws have reach and they have teeth. And our expectation is that other jurisdictions will follow and enact similar state laws for private payers. And frankly, the entire healthcare industry should take notice. And we appreciate John sharing his time and expertise with us. This has been a really valuable discussion. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for another edition of CyFarth's Healthcare Beat podcast, bringing you the latest developments and pressing issues in healthcare. So you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to visit CyFarth.com, where you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We look forward to having you with us again soon.